iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Dear God. Get the inspector. This crime is familiar to me. Edgar Allan Poe. To what may I attribute the honor of your call? The night before last, a young girl and a mother were found murdered. The daughter's body was lodged in a chimney. The mother's head severed with a straight razor. You're referring to one of my stories, a work of fiction. I'm afraid I am not. Do you actually think that I murdered these people? What cannot be disputed is that your imagination is the inspiration of a horrendous crime. I love you, Edgar. Be careful. I believe the killer is taunting us. I challenge the brilliant detective mind of Edgar Allan Poe, a game of wits. If I will kill again, and on that new corpse, I will leave clues. As unfortunate as this is, you may be uniquely qualified to cast light on our killer. The Pit and the Pendulum. Are there other stories in the collection? Specifically about murder. I'm afraid so. This killer is methodical. He wants us to know he's gonna strike again. Stop! I dare you to try to save your beloved's life. He will keep her alive to keep you involved. It's part of his game. I would gladly give my life for her. I know you would. I'll send you to hell! No matter how this ends, I will kill him. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, David Carr of the New York Times, and tonight's guest, John Cusack. Man, you got a coffee. I did bring you a cookie, but I didn't know how you liked your coffee, so I didn't, I didn't bring you one. Iced coffee's great. Yeah, it is delicious. Thanks for asking, John. How you guys doing? <laughs> you don't seem so sure. <laughs> Say what? Actually, all right. All right. I actually had my, um, my questions scribbled out on a, on a plain old piece of paper, and they gave me one of these uh, instead. I'm kidding. Um, the, we, we know from the movie that, that uh, these guys saw the trailer, and a week from Friday, you're all going to line up, get an incredible jumbo bucket of popcorn, and get whatever that stuff they put on it is. It's not butter, is it? Really. Butteria. You're going to sit down, buckle your seatbelt, and you're really going to love this movie. Um, but embedded in is a little bit of a love story, too, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Who's the girl you're macking on in this movie? Well, she is, uh, the actress is Alice Eve, who's a great actress, and she plays uh, Emily, who is a fictitious woman who's probably an amalgamation of 
Like he, three characters. Yeah, the women that uh, Poe was sort of courting after Virginia's death and before his sort of mysterious death. So, uh, yeah, the movie's sort of a part fiction, part fact, and part legend all mashed up into some Poe hybrid genre of a movie. Which sort of describes the movie. When you first yeah. heard about it, you said, well, it's, it's Poe, but it's Poe not just as crime writer, which was really just a small part of his business, but Poe as crime solver, were you a little worried? Did you think, wow, how's that going to work? Well, he sort of, um, it's, he, he created that whole genre. He created the de detective uh, genre. His inspector, Dolphine, was um, uh, the precursor to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. And Doyle said he based Sherlock Holmes on, on Dauphine and, and his stuff. And he, had, he did the, so he did the first time anyone was doing forensics and crime and trying to re-put re together the crime scene. And he also did, uh, you know, gothic horror. And he did, he actually did uh, some science fiction that Jules Verne then kind of bit on later where he'd do these kind of balloon hoaxes and these futuristic sci-fi stuff. He was doing parodies in burlesque, and of course he was writing uh, the best poetry in the world, uh, the most highbrow poetry, and also the Saturday evening pulp thrillers, grotesque horror, and he was a, he was a real complicated writer, great genius, twisted character. I hate guys who are good at more than one thing. He could do almost anything. Uh, as a writer, I think he could. Not as what a person. He a, was yeah, pretty well, limited as a person. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about as a human being. Yeah, he was, um, um, he was just wired too tight, I think. He certainly was, uh, from all accounts, was you know, born an alcoholic. And um, when he start, started drinking, he couldn't stop. Uh, and, uh, you know, but he was the first kind of outward rogue drunk who, who lived really publicly and you know, spoke very brazenly. And he, he, and he picked fights with... Uh, other poets and writers of the time, and he was always getting into intellectual feuds and uh, writing about his demons and writing about the abyss and the romance of the abyss. You know, he, he, uh, he wrote one of uh, my favorite stories, which I know is one of yours, is the, uh, the Imp of the Perverse. Yes. And that's the imp that makes you do the exact wrong thing and draws you into doing the most self-destructive thing at the exact wrong time. And uh, somehow Poe found the romance in that. But I think a lot of people do. That's why he's Yeah, I wrote memorable. a book a couple of years ago, and I opened with a quote from that. So I don't know a ton about Poe, but I was, I was sort of predisposed. I was skeptical about the film because you're taking a person we know a lot about, and you're adding other dimensions. But I think anybody who sees it would agree it worked out pretty nice. Yeah. Worked out pretty good. Why, 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 why do you think it worked? What, what went right? Well, I think McTeague is a really, James McTeague did it and he made uh, V for Vendetta and he's, got, he's a really good director and he's got a really good mind and he's a pretty ferocious character. And um, I also think like a straight biopic about someone whose imagination was that fertile is, is a really nice movie and it would be a good movie. And, um, you know, but we made this sort of dream about Poe. And Poe becomes kind of a character that gets caught up in one of his own stories. And in doing that, you kind of get into the meta Poe, which is, you know, he wrote about that space between being awake and being asleep, between life and death, between sanity and insanity. And he was always talking about the dream within the dream. So, and he was also, you know, a lot of times talking about his own demons and, and, and working out his own deepest fears and neuroses and terrors. 
and using the sorrows and tragedies of his life to kind of, as an alchemist, put him into this beautiful thing. So we thought by having Poe deconstruct his own stories, you, you get into the mind of him and you get to experience his stories in a way that I think was kind of, a, I, I liked the conceit of the movie because I thought it was, um, you know, Amadeus didn't happen, but you learn a hell of a lot about classical music in that movie. So this is pulp and it's terror and it's goth and it's horror, but you know, you don't have to just, you don't hear about the pit and the pendulum, you actually see it, you know? And then Poe has to experience it. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a hard R, it's, it's, it's a goth. It's, it's a great looking movie. But the Poe you, you play, he's not, he's certainly got his excesses, but he's a relatable character. He's not just a freak. I mean, you didn't have his hair coming out to here or frothing no. at the mouth. Or... No, he, and he was like, um, he was like a lot of, fu I mean, functional, I, mean, I don't mean to make too much of the attic thing, but he, he was somebody whose demons and terrors overwhelmed him, I think, kind of famously. And, uh, but he did go long stretches where he would work really hard and he'd stay away from the bottle. And then, you know, like, I think a lot of the writing that he made was, could be like an, a metaphor for his addiction and that beast and, as well, but not totally. But, but he, had a, he, he, was, um, he was a you know, professional writer and he wasn't like a vagabond, but he could end up with, um, with the derelicts down by the docks. He could go into any intellectual salon and then, you know, or end up with the sailors drunk by the docks. He was uh, Well, it's an age-old question in writing about whether the muse is beckoned by the bottle or suppressed by it. It's you the, It's a $64,000 question. Yeah. I mean, you can go from Hunter on Thompson on back mm -hmm. and say... Uh, or Chris, Christopher Hitchens, who just... Absolutely. Uh, and, and you Will, say, William Burroughs or Norman right, Mailer or right. Capote or... All, well, and we of, all... I, I mean, early in my career, I tried doing, you know, $300 worth of cocaine to do a story I got paid $200 with. Not a good business model. Not a good business model. But you, 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 you kind of... You get... Um, you read about all the greats and you think, well, maybe you need to be in an altered state. To, so do you think, Poe, uh, uh, that his, his sort of chemical state was part of his excellence or he produced in, 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 in spite of it? Um, my, it's just, this is just conjecture, right? But right. From what I've read and the research I did, I think he was uh, in spite of it. I think he probably, like a lot of uh, you know, junkies or alcoholics, he used the alcohol to kind of get straight. I mean, to, it, it wasn't really to kind of get high. I think he was trying to calm his mind or his nerves or alleviate his fears or his failures of, failures of rejection or to calm his demons. So I think it was the go-to salve, like the way it is for a lot of alkies and, or you know, junkies you know, in that way. It was the go-to option, but at some point it stops working. But I think his natural state when he was working was so out there and... Um, so otherworldly that, but you never know, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what gave him a little bit of trigger and loosened him up, but he seemed like he had a ferocious mind, you know, drunk or sober. You guys sent out the collected works with, with the movie yeah. and that thing. You know, if it fell off a coffee table, it'd kill a cat. It's about that big. Yeah. I mean, he did a lot of work. A lot of what works about the film is it's, well, you and you, you, you and the detective are kind of—it's—it's it's a little bit of a buddy movie in that you form this uneasy alliance, 
he's first suspecting you. Your, your Poe thinks the guy has a giant stick up his ass, basically. And, yeah. And they, they eventually form a... a, a they got a begrudging sort of respect for one another, and, and um, I think, yeah. And so the one guy's by the book, and, and, and Poe had these great... Uh, 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 leaps and it's sort of a left brain right brain thing mm-hmm. going on in the movie yes absolutely and I think um, the character that Luke plays uh, Detective Fields is sort of um, everything Poe can't be you know he's very uh, measured and self-assured and calm and rational and reasonable and Poe was yeah. um, brilliant and inspired but he, he didn't really um, couldn't tie his own shoes basically well you know he, he you know he was he was he was such a paradox he was a bunch of things he was went to west point and he was um he was physical he was capable he was but he he just i don't i think he was prone to deep mood swings and he felt things deeply and he felt good things deeply and bad things deeply and got overwhelmed by those feelings all the time and didn't really have much control over them he had control over his mind but he seemed to erratically swing he, he, he was one of these mercurial guys who had weather patterns come over him and take him away you know and fields is you know kind of the opposite so they're they're a little bit like oil and water in the movie one of the things that works about the movie is its look and i thought <clears throat> you know they've done a good job this is what baltimore like 1850 maybe mm-hmm. right and I thought I thought it was I, I, I thought the evocation of that time period was just gorgeous to behold and and goodness sort of movie sense, and then I find out mm, like you shot it in like Serbia or Hungary or something. Yeah, we shot it in uh, Budapest and and uh, Serbia and Croatia. And is it part part of that is Belgrade? Sorry, not Croatia. The, okay. The, the Baltimore that he lived in doesn't really exist because it all burned down. Uh, there, there's probably some places you could go, but I think when you when you go over to Eastern Europe, um, there's more of those old, that old architecture and the old cobblestone streets, and and um, it's probably cheaper to make it there um, than it is here. And uh, you mean also there was, was it, there were there were business decisions involved in making a film in all in these movies? John, I'm stunned by that. I know it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm breaking new news. For sure. But I think it was also good to be... Uh, I to thought you all just gathered in a circle and said, let's put on a darn show and yeah. hope the people come. We do, and then the, they say, well, you can't do it for that much. you got to do it for less. Um, but it was cool to go to um, Serbia and Hungary, too, because it was in the winter, so we were, you really felt like you were sort of away from modern stuff in America, and uh, you could just sort of get lost in it a little bit. And it was It was definitely had that feel. It was cold and... Arctic and dark, and we were shooting nights, so we we all felt sort of like vampires, and we we got we got into it. So when you can see your breath, you actually can see your breath. Yeah, it wasn't CGI. Okay. We, you know, you've worked a lot, and you've had uh, uh, an amazing career, but you you're kind of picky, and there's stuff you you've chosen not to. What what was it about this role or this movie or this director or this story that thought mm, that's a good way for me to spend several months of my life? Well, I love um, I like the supernatural and I love um, I love the gothic literature tradition and gothic horror. I love horror, um, mysteries, thrillers. Um, so I just thought the idea of playing somebody who was at the forefront of inventing all those genres and all those 
um, you know, the seeds that he planted, you can see they go off in music and in literature and in film, and he had such a huge influence that to kind of go to the source and kind of as an adult reread all of his stuff and immerse yourself in his stuff and lose yourself in that time frame, I thought that would be great and it would be challenging, and I thought, you know, what if, if you did a dream about Poe, it would be an intense dream. And uh, that seems scary. And when I get scared about something, I think it's usually I should do it because I sort of go towards that a little bit. One of the things I was thinking about in the past couple of days when I was uh, reading about your career and what you had done. I'm sorry about that. And um, what sorry. do you mean? Well, you could have been reading other things. It's a pretty good life you've had. And pretty, no uh, doubt. And, and uh, going into Netflix and doing... I mean, Gross Point Blank is one of my favorite movies, never mind. Oh, thank you. Who doesn't, who, who doesn't pop in grifters when they get a chance? I mean, it's, come on. <laughs> so in terms of work, it was, it was a pleasant diversion from the stuff. Oh, that's good. I'm usually doing... The, but one of the things I thought about is you've, you've been, in quotes, famous for a long time, almost kid actor, but... I was kid actor. I was... Okay, yeah. So, okay, so... Since, Not kid kid, but I was like teenage kid, like yes. 18, 17, 18-year-old kid. Yeah, so, so you've been working a long time, but your life has not been ruined by... Fame. I mean, I don't. Not, not yet. <laughs> I mean, ne maybe next I, week. I did Howard Stern today, so that might be. Oh, you over. did. Yeah. Maybe next week we're gonna read read the item in uh, uh, TMZ about you being walking down La Cienega with your underwear on your head. But I, I got that feeling. Probably the not. night's young. You never know. Him. Um, but could happen. Has happened. But you never. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot more video out there than there used to be. Um, what, how have you managed to sort of, sort of make your way in work, but you, you haven't really been consumed by it. It's not like you're on TMZ every other night or... Yeah, well, I think you can do that still even in... Uh, I think it'd be much harder for... Uh, I sort of feel bad. I don't really feel bad for any actors because it's lucky if you're an actor and you get to work. Yeah, whenever they make spe yeah. speeches about courage... But you know, at the Oscars, yeah. I always go, well, kind of. <laughs> kind of, but not really. Yeah. Um, but given the context of that question, I do think uh, it's hard to, if you think you have to be public all the time. Um, you know, I think social media is great. I do Twitter. I dig it. Um, I like direct access to people. And, you know, I'm glad Apple's around and I'm into my iPhone and all that stuff, too. But I don't think you should maybe be on call 24 hours a day just because you're an actor or you make paintings or you make songs. Um, I think it's good to kind of step back and, and get out of the spotlight and then you can come back into it and you, you don't feel like you've been overstaying your welcome. So that's always been sort of the way I looked at it. I thought it was kind of self-preservation. Like self what I like about your Twitter, number one, is the bio. Um, and I'm quoting, I, I'm not making this up. Apocalyptic shit disturber an elephant trainer on Twitter. And, and, and so what, what I like about your Twitter is it's not like, um, you know, I just went to the club with my buddies. You're, it, it reflects the whole of your life and the fact that you have political interest and you mm -hmm. have cultural interest. Yeah. And um, 
the fact that I, because a lot of what you see on Twitter is people think of it as a megaphone where they're just projecting their brand out into the world over and over again. And there's stuff that you sort of feel strongly about. I, I know sort of one of the things I've been writing a lot about is, is um, the Obama administration's, uh, you know, they were elected as the most transparent administration in, in history, but they've been fairly aggressive in sort of keeping, uh, keeping wraps on government information. It's, uh, um, and you've been, you know, you've been explicit about the costs of various wars and stuff, but you haven't turned into one of these cartoons of people who are constantly getting arrested or freaking out about what's in the news. How do you strike that balance? Well, I think um, you say what you want when you want and um, just, you know, speak from your conscience when you feel like you should. Um, you know, um, I grew up with a, a guy named John Turley and his, uh, he's a constitutional law professor. Right. And, you know, he studies this stuff and he doesn't have any axe to grind and he's by no means a conservative and uh, he'd, he, I think he'd be a progressive, but, you know, he did say that the... Uh, the Obama administration and the, Eric Holder has created an executive branch and has claimed executive authority that would make the Nixon administration blush. And, yeah, uh, they, and that's, that's not me, that's that's constitutional law professor. And he's talking about like the NDAA and the uh, unlimited detention and the idea that they can assassinate American citizens. Now, none of those chickens have come home to roost yet. And I don't believe that the president or the attorney general w would purposefully use that power um, but precedent is everything constitutionally, and do you want to hand that power over to President Santorum or President Gingrich? You know, you're not talking about bemoaning good or bad policy choices. You're talking about the ability of the executive branch to throw a man in prison and not ever give him a trial because we say he's a terrorist. Now, that's talking about a slippery slope. I mean, that's, your funda that's the fundamental democracy. That's not left or right issues. And for whatever reason, um, they've chosen to do that. And I don't think it's intellectually consistent or moral to, uh, to not point out that's wrong just because the progressives have, you know, the, quote, their guy in office. I think that's wrong. So that's, that's I've, you know, when asked about it, I've said it. But, um, you know, and I stand by it. And that's that. The, uh, um, I mean, one of the things that I was struck by is... Uh, um the Espionage Act has been used, you know, three times in history against, you know, so-called whistleblowers <clears throat> before Obama got there and now six times since. I don't think that's really what people thought of. But you and I could sit here and talk politics for all night. Bore these guys out of their gourds. You, I'm sure you But I, just, I think the only th question is, is that everybody thinks it in terms of what am I doing? Is it helping Romney? Is it hurting Obama? Is it hurting Obama? Is it hurting Romney? And I understand that game within the game, but there's got to be some what the Turley calls Rubicon line issues where you say, that's just wrong. And I don't care who the fuck it helps or hurts. Right. And, and I think, you know, people need to say that and they need to speak that way about uh, our country or we're fucked because, you know, let's say some kid decides he wants to, you know, some nephew of yours decides he wants to, um, he grows his hair and he says, I'm going to, I like Islam. And he goes to an Occupy Wall Street. Uh, Occupy Seattle protest and a car bomb goes off and there's some reactionary president in there or one of his mid-level apparatchiks. What are they going to do? They're going to throw him in prison? Now that's not happening now. 
But that's why habeas corpus is there. That's why you're supposed to be guaranteed a right to a, a trial by your peers. You know, you shouldn't, you, the, the executive branch can't unilaterally decide it can assassinate citizens, whether it's anywhere. But, you know, th th those are big issues and uh, we digress. We, we, we digress as we wish. Do you guys have a couple of questions you want to ask? It's so bright up here, I, I can't even really. Yeah, just raise your hand. We have you. a couple of microphones. We'll bring them around. This gentleman right here in the second row, if you can see me. Hey, John. Hi. Um, I was wondering, I, I looked through your filmography today, and I saw that you have never done, tell me if I'm wrong, never done a sequel. Mm -mm. And I just was wondering if there was any rhyme or reason to that, and you know, is Good there a sequel question. that you, you might have considered doing you know, now? or? I would have done, loved to have done one. I never got offered one, you know? Um, so um, it just never came up. We got one right over here. Hi, John. From Martian Child in 2012, what was your experience like? And what were Bobby Coleman and Liam James like from your point of view? They were great, great actors and great kids. And, you know, um, and I was just always amazed that they were so um, advanced. You know, they, 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 were so, they had so many skills and so much talent at that age. I was always kind of amazed. I was like, where'd you learn that? You know, but they were... They're just kind of amazing, amazing kids. Thank you, sir. Got one right over here. Hi. Is there a certain role that you've wanted to play your entire career but haven't had the opportunity to yet? And is there one role in particular that maybe you passed on but now really wish you had done? Um, no, I, I sort of just look, you know, what's in front of me and then if I can find something interesting to do. And um, so I'm just sort of game for it. And uh, I don't look back too much. Come on, there's got to be one I, that got away where you went, God, I can't believe I walked by that. Um, no regrets, John Cusack. No, I don't really, not, 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 how about this, not, not anymore, not anymore. I feel bad because you guys are like sitting behind me. So uh, right here, this gentleman in the red shirt has a question. Thank you, Mr. Red Shirt. Sorry, I have to look on? at the back of my bald head. No, that's okay. Um, if you've had a pretty cool career, if you've had one thing to take out of the career, out of your whole thing, what would it be? And also, what's like the... one movie or just one, a no, moment? No, just one, like, one like, life lesson or one thing that you've learned. And also, what's the greatest thing you've ever seen in the advancement of the film industry? The greatest thing I've ever seen in the advancement of... You mean, like, the technical thing? Uh, I think probably just... It's a double-edged sword, but I think, you know, there's a time when... If you made a movie, um, they could kill it. And now it's harder to get movies onto the big screen and to see them on the big screen, but you can't kill movies anymore. And uh, like there was a time, there was a great m movie called The Sweet Smell of Success with Tony, Lancaster, uh, Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. And it was this great movie about Walter Winchell and Alexander Mackendrick made it and James Wong Howe shot it. And it's Tony Amazing Curtis. And it's, it's a really cool, wild old movie. And it came out and like a lot of good movies, it got panned, bad reviews, and they said it sucked, and they said these guys are, you know, out of their minds. And it sort of got put on a shelf, and it was on a shelf for 20 years, and no one had seen it. And then somebody who had, like, was doing a cable station said, oh, there's an old uh, Burt Lancaster movie, let's, let's play it. And they started playing it on WGN Channel 9, and then it became kind of a cult movie, and then everybody recognized it as a great, great film. But it sort of died for 20 years. Now, if you make a movie it's pretty, you know, it's going to get out there and people will find it if you want. So that's kind of great, I think, you know, like that part of the, the movie business. And the uh, thing I would, uh, 
I've had so many good moments. I've been so lucky. I, I just feel there's probably too many to count. I've working with a lot of my heroes growing up and just really lucky. Next question, anyone? Right over here, same side of the stage, third row. Hey, um, if you were gonna make a movie like 150 or 160 years from now, about today, like you did with Poe, um, what would you make it on? God, I don't know. I think that would be like a, a question for Douglas Copeland or something. Uh, I don't know what I'd make it on. impact? Should I say it again? Yeah, there, I think so. Yeah, there's so many, but I don't, I don't you know, I just, I, I sort of don't have a movie in my head, but um, I don't know. What would you make a movie about? If, it, if, if I asked you the same question, do you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Occupy you... movement sticks out in my head, but I think there's some really creative people emerging, especially like in the, in the young 20s right now that are innovating in, um, in kind of communications, like the way people are interacting with each other, especially in software development. Um, mm. So it'd have to be something like that, but deeper than Facebook, I guess people that are kind of the open government movement and how that's gonna change the way that we kind of interact with other citizens around the world. I think that's, I think what, what, you, what you just said is definitely to me the most exciting thing about uh, technology and social networking is affecting the affecting change from outside the system and, and not putting your uh, faith into that narrow, obviously I'm a progressive, so I, I, I like the policies of the progressives. You're practically I wish, a I, communist. Yeah, I'm a, you know, I, I wish that we were, things were, but uh, I think not giving all your trust into the brand or into national politics or to this idea of rock star politics or some, some messiah that's gonna take care of our, our, our problems for us, but just getting together and doing it on your own. I think that's really exciting. So you're right. That, that's, I'd make a movie about that. And we have time for two more questions. The next one is in the same area, just one row back. Hi. Hi. Uh, being that this is such a unique role and Poe is such an interesting guy, is there any other writer you have a burning desire to play? Uh, yeah, I think there's a... I got really into, like, um, after I saw Midnight in Paris, I went back and read Movable Feast and... I, I do love that era, and and and, the, all, and they were great, you know, maniacs too. They were always, you know, Fitzgerald and and Hemingway and that that whole scene. So yeah, there's there's wonderful writers all over. Um, it's hard to get to do stories about writers and make it get inside their imagination. But yeah, if you could find a way, that would be great. Right here out in the front. When you were approaching the role playing a real person versus a fictional character, how was that different? And what did you bring? Was it more intimidating playing someone that was a real person and had a real life? Or um, I kind of thought it was, because um, you can never do a definitive story about anybody. If I did a story about your life, uh, if it was a book or a song or a movie, it would just be part of you, you know? So I think you can have a dream about Poe or you can have a, a version of him you know, Lou Reed has that great album, The Raven, and that's like Lou Reed's version. And this is James McTeague's, you know, or mine, and other people will write theirs. Um, so I think you can just sort of mix your imagination with a version of him that you want to tell. And uh, the good news about having um, all of his writings and his work there is you can, you have all these answers you can go to. So if you have a question about him, you can go read his letters or you can read, all, read what he wrote about. So I, I always feel like it's the ultimate cheat sheet. You know, instead of having to invent it on Just your own. a quick moderator's prerogative. I saw Judd Apatow at the opening of Tribeca Film Festival, and I said I was going to interview you, and he said, 
I just love watching that guy's get his heart broken. That's weird. How come he never offered me a job? Yeah. He, he loved let it me so tell much. you, he, yeah. he attributed half his body of work to your early work and your ability to be both noble and sort of clueless and said you'd lay down the track of... of for, oh, I'm for, definitely clueless. Uh, dozens of us, you know, the, 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 the aspirational average guy who does something above himself and without getting his specifics. But when he said that, I thought, yeah, you play that well, but you seem like basically a pretty happy guy. Uh, or do you sprout another head and turn into this dark actor freak when you walk up? No, I, th I think I know how to do that other part. But, you know, I'm Irish, black Irish, so uh, that, we got that in there somewhere. You know the darks, then. And if you put, you know, if you put a bottle of tequila in me, I'm sure it might not be... <laughs> It might be ugly, but uh, I seem, um, you know, I seem, I feel pretty happy these days. You should be. It's a great film. Thanks a lot for Thank you, you guys showing up. Thank you again so much. John Cusack, everybody. The film The Raven opens wide next weekend. We should plan a field trip. We'll all go together. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. We hope you guys had a great time. We hope to see you next time. Have the best weekend ever. <laughs>